Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Focus Group Podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark. And this week, we're going to talk about another tough issue. Just last week, we did abortion. But I want to talk about the horrible situation in the Middle East and how it is reverberating here in America. I've avoided talking about this in the show since October 7th because I didn't want to jump right into the political implications of such a large-scale tragedy. But we've learned a lot in recent weeks about how the situation is making Americans, particularly Jewish Americans, feel both about their fellow Americans and about America's role in the world. We thought it would make sense to talk to a group of Jewish American voters who voted for Donald Trump twice in both 2016 and 2020. I was super interested in how they were thinking about the job that Biden was doing. And my guest today is my great friend and notable Jew, Bill Crystal. Bill, thanks for being here. Yes, I like being introduced as a notable Jew. It's unusual for me, you know. <laughs> Remember when somebody called you a renegade Jew? Yeah. It was like yeah. the Federalist yeah, or something was that was yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Mm. Notable, renegade, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what do you think is going on in the country right now regarding Israel? And what do you think just our political discourse is missing? I mean, the country is pretty pro-Israel in the current crisis, so far as I can tell. The Biden administration has been very supportive of Israel. People can quibble about this or that, but I was thinking about this. I'm not sure it's not the most supportive of Israel of any administration in a comparable crisis. Linda Johnson in 67 did not really help. Nixon in 73 hesitated before sending arms. 82, there was great pressure on Israel to pull out of Lebanon after the deaths there. Again, I'm not saying whether it was right or wrong, but I just think actually, analytically, the Biden administration has been strongly pro-Israel. The Republican Party is even more strongly pro-Israel, though in a pretty unnuanced and sometimes slightly odd way, but still. So empirically, analytically, you'd have to say the United States, people who are pro-Israel should be pleased with the current situation in the U.S. On the other hand, Jews in the U.S. and people who are pro-Israel who are Jews are unnerved by the current situation in the U.S. And I think we'll see this some on the focus group because of uh, the anti-Semitism on campuses, other expressions of it in some other spheres. It's presumably a rather small number, you know, in terms of percentages, but it's still kind of a lot of people at these marches and demonstrations. And then I do think people feel, I feel this myself a little bit, maybe for the first time in my adult life that, you know, there's more actual anti-Semitism, tolerance of anti-Semitism, defense of anti-Semitism in our big cities, at least in our prestigious college campuses. It's one thing to sort of think that, well, maybe out in middle America, they never met many Jews and they probably think, you know, aren't crazy about Jews. That's like, okay, that's been the case for hundreds or thousands of years in a lot of the world, but but they're not going around doing anything much about it and uh, maybe not letting people into country clubs or something. But to see the kinds of statements that have come out of faculty at elite colleges and the kinds of demonstrations in major cities, that's where Jews live and what they sort of aspire to, you might say. That's unnerving, I think, for people. Yeah. Well, These Jewish Trump voters that we talked to, when we asked just right at the start of the group, as we always do, how they think things are going in the country, and this is what they said right off the top. My wife is Israeli, so first couple weeks she was crying her eyes out for her family. I'm seeing Israeli flags being burned and people being beat on the street for having (laughs) Israeli flags in support, just totally disgusted at what our country has become. Very distressed about what's going on in Israel. I had a child there a month ago and he was supposed to start college and 
we made a very painful decision to bring him home because his school wasn't opening. So basically his whole life is on hold. Anyway, that's just personal. But um, I think, yeah, the country is in a lot of trouble in many different ways, like in terms of inflation and the cost of things and crime and gun control and internationally, I think there's so many issues I wouldn't even know where to start. I'm glad your son is home and safe. We are all, to say the least, we are all concerned about everybody there and here, more importantly. My concern for the country was already hell in a handbasket before, but given this administration and what's happening in Israel and all over the Mideast, we've got the wrong leader at the wrong time at the helm, and that scares me now more than ever. Horrible. This is the worst administration in the country's history. It's taking us all down the path of demise. Every aspect. I mean, nobody even mentioned the illegal aliens that are coming in. I'm really glad that we seem to be a like-minded bunch because I was a little afraid of joining a political group. So obviously we screened this group for Jews who were specifically Republican and Trump voters. And so this is like a very narrow slice. But the reason I wanted to talk to this group is I was interested in whether or not they thought Biden was doing a good job on Israel and also just hearing how they sort of felt politically. But one thing I'm interested in, because we're going to listen to sound later about them specifically talking about how Biden's handled things. But I'm right in saying that a majority of Jews are Democrats, correct? Right. I mean, I think Jews voted maybe 25 percent for Trump in 2020. So you're getting a slice of American Jews, but only a not a huge slice. So yeah, so we should keep that in mind. On the other hand, it's, you know, a quarter is not nothing. Yeah. But tell me, as somebody who's been a conservative your whole life and also Jewish, like, what does the Jewish conservative, like Republican community look like? And how do they fit uh, with sort of the rest of the Jewish community? Yeah. So as someone who is a conservative, is a Jew and was a Republican, I guess maybe still sort of conservative. Yeah. I mean, Jewish Republicans were typically more religious. Among Orthodox Jews, there was um, more inclination to vote for Republicans. They were less put off by the Republican views on social issues, which were a huge problem for liberal or even I'd say mainstream Jews. But Orthodox Jews are much more conservative on a lot of these social issues, care a lot about religious freedom, are scared that they're going to be forced to do things in their synagogues or schools that they don't approve of uh, by progressive courts and so forth. Then we're worried about the anti-Israel element on the left and in the Democratic Party, which is real, I think pretty small in the Democratic Party, larger, obviously, on the campus left. So obviously, they've been reinforced in those alarms. I don't think it would be fair to say in the Democratic Party, but certainly on the the left more broadly, since the attack on October 7th. I mean, I do think it's also worth just pointing out the brutality of that attack to people who knew people in Israel. I mean, it was shocking in a way that other, a lot of terrible things that happened over the last uh, decades, uh, terrorism and, and wars with Israel. But this was almost unique in, in sort of just the, say, the brutality, the fact that it was in Israel proper, an assault on civilians at a music festival and on peaceful kibbutzes in southern Israel. So I think that was just shocking. If you knew anyone in Israel, your first thought was, did anyone, was people I know, were they there? Were their kids there? Were their kids' friends there? And Israel is such a small country that by the time you get to friends and friends' kids and kids' friends, you often met someone who at least could have been in real danger, or who's now been mobilized, certainly, to fight. That's the other thing. I mean, Israel's mobilized, I think, 350,000 people. That's, you know, 20% of the workforce. That's a huge percentage of the population. I think it would be 11, 12, 13 million people here. Think of that, you know. Be as if one of five people in in our office 
since our office is kind of young, I would say even more are mobilized. Not every one of them is fighting Gaza. Obviously, they're at different places and have different jobs, but it's personal there. And then if people know people in Israel, you know someone whose kid is mobilized. So I think for the American Jewish community, for the pro-Israel part of it, for the Israel-connected part of it, which probably is just little disproportionately Republican these days, it wasn't always the case, this thing has been brought home in a very big way. And then the fact that, as I say, on campuses, I was just talking to someone from LA, there's some kind of riot outside the Museum of Tolerance where there was a, I don't know, some movie that was... Cause- it was Gal Gadot who plays... Um- She's the Wonder Woman actress, and so she was playing the footage of some of the attack from Hamas because, you know, there's this thing right now, right, where people are denying that it happened. And so there's actual footage of it. And so there's this movement to, like, make people watch it so that they know how real it was. And so she was doing that, and it led to a, yeah, protest, a counter-protest outside. Many, many American Jews live in the New York area. Second largest, I think, is the L.A. area. And those have both been also big areas for some anti-Israel groups and for progressives and college campuses. Again, it's not evenly dispersed. I talked to someone who's teaches at a big state school in the Midwest. He's seen nothing. He's seen a demonstration on his campus of 15 people against Israel and 40 people pro-Israel, and it's not being discussed so far as he can tell in classrooms or dorms. Very different at Columbia or at UCLA. But those are where, again, American Jews, kids go, and that's the local news coverage for, for many, many American Jews. Yeah. And you heard right off the top there, one of the guys say, like, my wife's Israeli. Like, I do think that is what what strikes me when I talk to friends of mine who are Jewish is like, A, how many people have been there? I'll tell you one of the hardest things for me when I try to understand uh, what's happening in Israel is that I just don't have a sense of the geography. Whereas when you talk to Jews in America, like, lots of them have been there and know exactly what Gaza looks like. You must have been to Israel a lot of times, right? So, like, do you have a picture in your head of like where all these things are. Yes, and though I've not been to those kibbutzim that were attacked, but the main thing to say for Americans is it is a very small country. I think it's the size of New Jersey or something. I'm not sure, Virginia, you know, it's something like that. And so once you go there, you, you do realize that much more concretely. It's not as if you visit America and you go to New York and you have no idea what's going on in Missouri. In Israel, it's close enough that you sort of get a sense of, of how small a country it is and how much people are at risk. And then if there are rockets hitting Tel Aviv, and of course, if there's an attack, across the border in the South, it's you'll know people who have lived there or visited there, certainly. Yeah. There have been reports that in the first two weeks since the 10-7 tax, anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. are up 388% over the same time period in 2022, according to the Anti-Defamation League. We also saw a horrible story in Thousand Oaks, California, of a Jewish man who was hit in the head with a megaphone at a protest and died of his injuries. We don't know yet if that was like on purpose, like a hate crime. But a Cornell student was arrested for making threats against Jewish students there and around the country. Jewish schools and other institutions have closed because of the threats of violence. And we heard in this group a real elevated fear of being Jewish in public from the voters we talked to. Let's listen. Actually talking about going to Florida, moving to Texas, moving to a different state that's not so liberal. The liberalization of California Like, I'm afraid to talk to people at work, honestly. Like, I didn't really talk that much before, but I mean, I keep so to myself right now that it's mind-boggling that, like, I don't want to even assert any kind of random statement that might cause someone to go ballistic. My husband recently got a little sticker to put on his window that has, it's a diagonal 
one half has the United States flag and one has the Israeli flag and he put it on his car window and he got another one. And I said, I'm not putting it on my window. No way. I'm in Arizona. We're a little bit nuts down here. I don't know who is going to have what twisted mentality that might react to it. We're flying to New York City for Christmas. I'm really afraid to get on a plane out of Phoenix into JFK and back. My husband is a stereotypical Jewish doctor and he works in Baltimore. And he told me this past week that two doctors were in a lounge and they're Middle Eastern, we'll just leave it at that. They're friends, you know, they're colleagues. And he said it was the first time ever that the two Middle Eastern doctors were speaking to each other in Arabic, clearly not wanting other people to understand what they were saying. And that was scary for him. What scares me is, and we all understand this, that the Holocaust didn't happen on the day one. There were many years before that things were happening that led up to it. And this is the type of things that we're seeing today. And that's nerve shattering. And nobody is speaking up. So I think what's difficult to understand sort of as an American is for me watching the way that it's like it has translated into things here, right? So we're this like pluralistic society and everybody works together and is part of this melting pot community. Is this a new phenomenon where then suddenly those divisions over there come over here and make people feel distrustful of each other? Is that new or is that kind of always how it's been? I think it's new that people feel in the modern era in America, which has been the promised land and where Jews have done fantastically well and owe a huge amount to America and have not typically felt threatened. And for all the talk of, and they were real, I don't mean to minimize it, of anti-Semitic incidents and threats over the years by Jewish history standards, or even honestly by the standards of other American minority groups, obviously blacks goes without saying, but true of other groups too, it's been pretty minor. And I think I'm struck talking to people that for the first time, and this is very much captured in the focus group, friends I know who have kids in college campus, they're not just annoyed that the people should be more pro-Israel or, or you know, worried about the voting patterns in the next election or worried about American foreign policy. That's typically been the worry. You know, is the administration going to bow to international pressure or in the old days to the oil pressure from the Arab states and not be pro-Israel enough? That's kind of what people talked about. I remember this vividly in high school and college and 67 and 73. And then once I came to Washington, it was much more concerned about, will America be pro-Israel enough? I do think this is the first time that upper middle class Jewish Americans are genuinely concerned, as the people in the focus group said, about their own security, about their kids' safety and security, or at least feeling comfortable being Jewish, wearing a kippah, if that's what they do, or putting, a, someone said, a sticker on a car or on something else. Now, you could say they're exaggerating the fears, you know, that it's still a very safe place to be a Jew, modern America. And, and attending Cornell or UCLA or flying from Phoenix to JFK is a pretty safe thing to do by the standards of the world. You can say that, but I am struck just as a factual matter how many people are worried. And, and again, that you can say it's just discomfort. Man, horribly was killed in LA, but it's mostly harassment, not murder, thank God. But people aren't used to that. And they do worry that, you know, if you're Jewish, you're very sensitive to Jewish history. And as uh, someone said, you know, it starts this harassment and, and escalates. So I do think it's a different situation in the sense that people really feel the sense of worried about the safety and security. I, I know many people who have kids, some of my age have a little older, have grandkids in college. And they said, the first question is, how's your kid doing? I mean, does he or she feel secure, safe, able to volunteer his opinions, go to services Friday night at the Hillel? Or is it really bad? And I've heard mixed things at different colleges, honestly. But more people are worried about just basic safety, security, welcoming 
than I can recall as an adult. So I want to talk about the left a little bit. We heard a lot of fear from these groups about the state of college campuses these days and the voices that these voters and the groups that they see as promoting anti-Semitism. Let's listen. I think the acceptance of anti-Semitism on the college campuses is outrageous. I mean, that's not even the appropriate word. I don't even know what the appropriate word is. I have a child in Penn and University of Pennsylvania and like their Hillel was vandalized even before any of this. No one stands up for them. Like our kids aren't supposed to be kept safe. Like where's their voice? You know, now it's happening in Cornell and Columbia and in these Ivy League institutions and their presidents and their administrators are, are not speaking out again. Like, this is not 1942. We do not live in Germany. Like, it's appalling to me that this is going on. It's terrifying and it's not okay. Like, it's, it's not okay. And if people used to say, well, if I don't feel safe in this country, I can always go to Israel. Well, are you safe in Israel now? I don't think so. Like, where are Jews safe right now? I think what's so surprising to me is the difference in how the country reacts to what's going on with this versus how the country reacts to what happens or has happened with other minority groups. That is just unbelievably shocking to me. I I was going on a rant about that earlier, but I'm doubling down on that. I think the hypocrisy is just astounding. The same people that are screaming about lives mattering, and well, that's not true. Clearly, all lives don't matter to you. It's like, I'm just at a loss for words, and I'm angry, and I'm scared, um, and I don't know what to do. What scares me more is the members of the squad that are still allowed to be in a position spewing the hate and vitriol that they are, and they're still active members of Congress. And I don't understand it. So I want to ask you, Bill, about Rashida Tlaib. So as you mentioned, the squad, she's from Michigan. She got some blowback from fellow Democrats for posting a video with From the River to the Sea, and she sort of defended that. Now, only 22 Democrats voted to censure Tlaib. And so you and I have both become somewhat invested in the Democrats being the responsible party. Are you concerned about them at all right now? Or do you think that they are being really responsible in, in some of them censoring Tlaib? I'm not even sure whether you think censoring Tlaib was the right thing to do because it's an unusual thing to do. But so like, tell me where you come down on something like this. I mean, so the good news is the huge majority, I mean, really huge majority of Democrats are not where the squad is. The whole squad is not quite where Tlaib is. Uh, she's a Palestinian American. Her, I guess, grandmother's on the West Bank. And so she, you know, I think what she says is totally irresponsible and deplorable. I Voting to censure, that's the question. She's a member of Congress. She's entitled to have bad views and, and use slogans that, that imply at least that there's no Israel. That's what from the river to the sea means, that there would be one state and presumably majority Palestinian state. It might also mean if Hamas becomes the prominent in that state, the slaughter of Jews. So it is something to be very alarmed about and to denounce. Now, it has been denounced by huge numbers of her fellow members, Democrats, fellow Democrats in Congress and elsewhere. And so I would still say, yes, the Democratic Party is mostly fine, but Republicans have their own problem on their right. God knows with Trump having dinner with neo-Nazis and stuff, and Trump's kind of a more important figure than Rashida Tlaib. So I could make a sort of partisan case here that uh, the Republicans have no right to look down on the Democrats. Biden, I think, has been as pro-Israel as one could reasonably expect. In fact, 
being pro-Israel does not mean endorsing every possible thing that a Netanyahu government could do to kill Arabs, which is sort of what the, honestly, what some of these Republican presidential candidates sound like. I don't think that's genuinely pro-Israel. Having said all that, these are Trump voters we're listening to. They're saying what they sincerely believe. They're also watching Fox. And I could try to reason and say, look, AOC is elected to Congress. She's entitled to have her views. Her constituents know her views. People are entitled to fund a primary campaign against her. And there are going to be primary campaigns against many of these people. And some of them could lose. You know, I hope they do in most cases. But you know, we do have a democracy. And if there end up being three or four very anti-Israel members of Congress who are Democrats, they're 435 members of the House, you know, and that's probably just life in, in America today. But I was struck when the people in the group say, no one's standing up for us. I think that's the more relevant thing politically. Everyone understands when you stop for a minute that, you know, it's a massive country, it's 330 million people. They can get 10,000 people at a demonstration somewhere. They can have one or two members of Congress or five or six or eight who are very bad on these issues. The no one's standing up for us. I was struck by that. And I guess my reaction at first is, well, I don't know. The Democrats have been fine. I mean, really... Maybe it's correct that as a political matter, you don't see quite the pushback from Democratic leaders. You certainly don't see it from university presidents. So that's what's so appalling. What's appalling to me is less that, you know, there are students and faculty at Harvard who are pro-Palestinian and really anti-Israel. And again, I don't think they should be fired for doing that or, or whatever, or even personally perhaps pilloried for their views, except maybe in a few cases where faculty members really are saying horrible things. But the original letters from the presidents of all these institutions and even the subsequent actions were so timid and uh, lukewarm and you know, punches being pulled and products of committees. And we got no sense of the establishment in these institutions, at least, really standing up for the Jewish students. And, you know, the establishment of these institutions are sort of are Democrats, probably. I'm going to just guess that most of these Ivy League presidents are Biden supporters. And so it spills over. And the same is true in some other areas of American life, too. And it does kind of legitimize or seem to legitimize the complaint you know, among conservatives that you can't trust the Democratic Party, even if Biden personally is okay, because ultimately these cultural forces on the left are just going to sweep over the party or, or pull the party very much in this direction. I don't think that's true. I would even make the contrary case that if you think that, you should care a lot about having pro-Israel Democrats get stronger not weaker, right? You want John Fetterman and Abigail Spanberger and Josh Shapiro and others to be more important figures in the Democratic Party. I mean, I'll ask, how much of this is a Biden question? I mean, honestly, he just isn't that outspoken. He's uh, older. You know, it's fine. He, I think he's done well. He's mostly worrying about what's happening in the Middle East, which is very important. And a lot more people are getting killed over there than here, you know, and he's right to worry about what's going to happen in the actual war and, and how to manage that. But I do feel like his sort of lack of visibility domestically is making that line of attack or of argument more credible than it would otherwise be. Yeah, well, let's let's listen. I mean, we talked to these voters and asked them how Biden was handling things. You know, the swing voters don't tend to like much of what they hear from Biden these days. But we do hear some scattered praise from him on this issue. Not from any of the Jewish Republicans that we talked to, though, in this group. But one of these people is a two-time Trump voter who's a little bit down on Trump. So let's listen. I have to give Biden credit because he did stand up initially and say, yes, we're behind Israel 100 percent, which I'm glad to hear he said that. I just hope he sticks with that and he doesn't waver because we have people coming in through the borders. We have our own problems here in the U.S. as far as security. And I just hope he sticks and says he continues to support. I have to be fair. I felt like he was earnest 
he even said, and I'm going to try to quote him, he said, you think we aren't doing anything? We are. I can't tell you because if we do. Yeah, so in other (laughs) words, the man's not stupid. I think he feels, yes, this is a big issue, and I think he's doing what he can. I struggle with, we're helping Ukraine, we're doing this, we're doing that. But this is a big thing. When I saw the children and the bombing of them killing children and the poor mother that got shot up, the, the son, I cried. It's horrendous. So, I feel like a terrible human being after you yeah, say that. I, no, 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 not from that. Because there are people dying on both sides. So can I ask you about the both sides thing? There's like an attempted good faith pushback, right, that the left is making where they're saying, no, what happened in Israel on 10-7 is horrific, but Israel can't just turn around and, they would say, indiscriminately bomb these Palestinians. Like, what is the right response now? What should Israel do? Well, they shouldn't indiscriminately bomb Palestinians, and they're not. I mean, they're attacking Hamas and Gaza, which is causing a lot of civilian casualties, maybe too many. I mean, that's really hard to judge from afar. The Biden administration has been pretty clear that they want Israel to, as much as possible not to kill civilians in Gaza in the course of going after Hamas. But no one really questions that Israel does have the both right and obligation, I'd say, to go after Hamas. This notion that it's they're just indiscriminately killing Palestinians is ridiculous. There are Palestinians in the West Bank. There are Arab citizens of Israel. I mean, there have been incidents which are deplorable, uh, and I wish the Netanyahu government got them more under control of killing of individual Arabs. But I mean, there's not massive killing going on, God knows, there, and, and no one's proposing it or talking about it. So I think... For pro-Israel people to get their hackles up every time either someone in America or really, honestly, people in Israel say this too, you know, look, we've got to be careful. We've got to make sure that the means are in accord with the end. We can't simply go in and rage and bomb Gaza for a month without a real military purpose. I don't think they're doing that. I think people don't have great faith in the Netanyahu government. There are some really bad people in it. So it's a complicated situation. But I feel like what the Biden administration has been saying is about right, honestly. I mean, Biden's trip to Israel was pretty amazing you know, right there near the beginning of the war. To go there was, I'm sure the Secret Service was not happy. And I'm sure normal diplomats weren't happy. I myself, having been in government, was like, geez, he's getting awfully close to the situation. Doesn't he want to keep a little distance so he can both support Israel, but then at times say, I don't quite agree with this. But instead he he went and he was 98% an embrace of Israel in that trip. In fact, there's been backlash from the less pro-Israel parts of the Democratic Party because of that. What's amazing to me is how little credit he's gotten for that both from Jewish Americans, but in America in generally, which is a pro-Israel country, you know, leave aside these Trump voters we're listening to today, but from swing voters, and this is your expertise, but the degree to which people's attitude towards Biden is just hardened. And they, he does something like this, which I would say in a normal circumstances would move some voters. People say, whoa, that's a little different from what I expected. So maybe it moves 3% of the voters. Even Carter got a bump, you know, when people thought for a while he was handling the Iranian hostage crisis well and standing up for America and so forth. I feel the fact that Biden got no credit for this at all. It's not fair. It's not right, in my opinion. But doesn't it say something about how much, you know, that 41% approval rating for Biden is just stuck, it seems like? Or worse, that it could go down because here's, I wanted to do this group for a lot of reasons, but one of the main ones is I was like, are Republican Jews, like forget Republicans, but like would Republicans who are Jewish, would they say, man, I'm watching Biden really stand up for Israel to his expense with 
some section of his voters, these young voters who are saying they're angry at him and they don't like how pro-Israel he's been. And so he is clearly taking this principled stand. And when we asked these Trump voters who are all Jewish, I want you to listen to what they said. Basically, my opinion is, let Israel do what Israel has to do. We need to stay out of it, okay? Now, if we have to protect our assets, that's one thing. Israel doesn't need our help to do what they need to do. They have their wonderful military. They have the ability. They have their own assets. Let them do what they have to do, okay? The world hates Israel, always has. What difference does it make? They get some bad press. It's 24-7 bad press since 1948. You got Sullivan, Jay Sullivan, a week before October 7th. The Middle East has never been better, never been quieter. And then days later, it blows up, number one. Number two, you got a situation where just the other day, Biden appointed Czar Harris in charge of a new committee, a new group that's going to combat hate in America. And what was identified as that? Islamophobia. Anti-Semitism is like 300 and whatever percent greater than it was before October 7th. And it was terrible then. The situation that bothers me also is little talked about. That is the hundred million dollars that Biden is asking for to go to Gaza. The trouble with that is anything that goes over there for quote unquote humanitarian effort goes through Hamas. So we'd actually be giving money to Hamas, who we're trying to help Israel defeat. So our money's going both ways. No, we need to put a message out there that any American is harmed in any way. We are going to hit you 10 times harder. We've got hostages in Hamas, and we're not doing anything. We've got Biden and his secretary of state promoting a two-state solution. That will be the demise of Israel. I think it was Robert Gates once said that Joe Biden was wrong in every foreign policy decision for 40 years. He changed that to at least 50 years. The man is a complete idiot. So there just wasn't anybody who wanted to give Biden any credit from this group, like no love whatsoever. So you have taken the position that Joe Biden ought to drop out and not going to relitigate that with you right now. But because I thought that Israel has really been one of his stronger moments, I guess I'm just surprised that it looks like he's not going to get any credit for this and that actually him doing the right thing here is going to be a net negative for him politically. And look, some of these criticisms are legitimate, I think, around the edges of Biden's policy. Some of this is just unfair and some of this is just silly. Israel does need our help, honestly. Americans have already been killed. Do all these America first people who support Trump, do they want American troops to go in? I'm not personally against it, incidentally. If we could rescue hostages, I would use. They do not. They do not. They right. do not. They're super clear. They're, right. They so don't. it's both like America needs to really be tough and stand up for Americans. Americans get killed and let Israel do it. Well, okay, we can let Israel do it, but that's got its own complications. And it does matter what public opinion was. These same voters, when they were watching Fox, with all due respect to them, in 2019, 2020, was all, Trump's great because look at these Abraham Accords. The Arab countries are coming around to being okay with Israel, which incidentally was partly true and was an accomplishment to the Trump administration. So this is what partisan politics looks like. What strikes me, and you've seen this in the other, I think this was in last week's focus group, maybe, people saying, 
the world's a mess. Under Trump, things were calmer, and now everything's falling apart. And let's even leave aside price levels or inflation is up. But also, there are two wars going on, and who knows how they'll end. And Biden's president, and somehow getting rid of Biden or a younger Democrat who could replace him if he stepped aside, it will somehow solve this problem. And Biden's not responsible for these wars. And you know what? You don't know how wars will end. That's sort of what wars are about, you know, and they're very difficult. And the good guys don't always win, and they don't always win in the first few months or without real losses and casualties and heartbreak. But the fact that Biden is getting no credit for either Ukraine or Israel for managing those competently and seriously and in the, I'd say, a bipartisan tradition of American foreign policy over the last decades, even from swing voters, that they can step back to say everything's a mess and somehow we need change. That is the mood. That's, again, why someone like me thinks maybe another Democrat would be better than Biden. It's unfair, but at least the other Democrat wouldn't be the incumbent who's responsible for the best, you know? And I am a little freaked out as it's just political matter how much that's just become routine among swing voters, though. I totally agree that people always want someone new. They certainly want someone younger at this point. I mean, I'm happy to have the argument about Biden. No, no, I'm not even making that argument. And I I agree. I'm not saying that if Gretchen Whitmer were the nominee, they wouldn't say she's just as bad as Biden, so they wouldn't be open-minded about it either. I just, but I am a little amazed that just for Biden, leave aside totally whether he should step aside for 2024 or whatever. Normally, there's a bit of a rally to the flag effect when we get a crisis yeah. and Americans are at risk and Americans were killed here and other Americans are hostages and a very close American ally is fighting a very difficult war and Ukraine is a less historically close American ally, but I'd say a very admirable country that's standing up against Putin, whom I think everyone can agree is horrible and a force for evil in the world. And Biden's getting no bump, no rally to the flag effect. And just as an analytical matter, what does that say about the public's view? I don't even understand it, honestly. I mean, is that the age shouldn't affect the rally to the flag thing, you know what I mean? But but it, it just doesn't seem to be happening. Don't you think he's done maybe as good a job as you could expect to get from any Democratic president? So leave aside the credit. But like in this moment, you're right that the voters perceive the world to be in chaos and that's working against Biden. But in terms of like, who do you really want steering the ship in this moment? Isn't it good to have Biden there? Like, do you really want somebody else or isn't he uniquely suited for this moment? I think he's done a good job. I'm glad he's going to keep steering the ship for a year. That's quite a long time. And I think at that point, presumably we're through this initial crisis with Israel and Gaza, one hopes, and maybe Ukraine is, we'll see what it is. But, And I do think most of the leading candidates on the Democratic side would continue Biden's policy. I don't think he's uniquely qualified. I think he's done a good job. Though. Okay. If he keeps doing this job for the next year, he will be a very good one-term president. Uh, you don't think if he gets us through wars in both Ukraine and Israel that that buys him the goodwill of a second term? Well, honestly, that's a very fair question. It should buy him more goodwill than it's buying him. That is true. I was surprised a little bit by how unwilling any of these members of this focus group was to give him some credit. It was like, he's an idiot. He's weak. He's doing everything wrong. So I also want to talk about Donald Trump a little bit because one of the things I've consistently horrified by in recent years is how some of Trump's like worst, most ridiculous statements just roll right off of him. For example, he recently called Hezbollah smart right after the attacks and also, you know, was like fighting with Netanyahu over like the stolen election. I didn't even actually understand quite. Trump's grievance seemed very stupid and just about Trump. But let's listen to how these voters defended Trump. Hamas is very smart when it comes to how they apply 
their propaganda to different areas. Look how they talk to the Arabic world, kill the Jews, kill Israel, kill the Christians, whatever. Look how they go to our American universities, actually universities in the West. Completely different mindset. Go after the occupiers. Go after the colonials, okay? It's completely different. They are smart. They know how to use the money that we've been giving them. And that money goes way back into the Clinton Accord deal that he did back in the 90s. That money has been going to the Palestinians and to Hezbollah and Mossad people. They're masters at this game. I think Trump, we all know, does not have filters. And unfortunately, without a filter, it comes out sounding wrong. But I don't think that's where his heart was. He had China taxed and tariffed so much, they were scared to move a finger, afraid they won't be able to import products into the country. And not only afraid of that, but they were getting taxed heavily on it. He had every country at bay at his fingertips. He was calling the China guy Rocket Man on the news. Oh, Rocket Man over there, he's going to shoot us? We'll demolish his own country. He had the whole leaders of every country scared out of their pants. The foreign countries, whichever they are, looked at Trump as he's a little bit crazy and you don't know what he's going to do. So they weren't going to test him. No way, no how. Okay. So this is pretty standard from what we hear from voters. You remember that New York Times poll a couple of weeks ago that everybody freaked out about that had Trump leading in all the swing states? So we have heard both from Republicans and from a lot of swing voters that they feel like these major global conflicts wouldn't be happening if Trump was at the helm. And many of them like say this for this reason, like, because he's so crazy that nobody would test him. And so like when we say, can you believe he's calling Hezbollah smart? Why would anybody want this insane person to have their finger on the button? Like these voters are telling us that they actually like that he's a little crazy and unpredictable because that's going to keep these foreign leaders on their toes. Thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I mean, Bibi Netanyahu, who's Trump's great friend, was prime minister of Israel when this attack happened, and they were not prepared. And it was a horrible failure for the Netanyahu government. Everyone in Israel understands that, including the people who have gone to mobilize to fight. So we need to be able to distinguish between sort of being a tough guy. He also incidentally helped prop up Hamas for many years. That was maybe bipartisan Israeli policy, foolish in retrospect, and maybe foolish at the time, uh, dividing the Palestinians between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and so forth. Foreign policy is difficult, but the idea that just being super bellicose and tough sounding while actually withdrawing from the world, which is his actual policy, his actual policy is to let Putin win in Ukraine. Uh, I think that's very bad foreign policy, but I guess people are entitled to have that view. Our colleague, Jonathan Last, has a wonderful point that the polls are very surprising that Biden gets no credit and so forth, and that Biden's behind Trump. And then we step back and say, really, he's behind this guy who tried to overturn the last election and so forth. But you know what? The polls could be off by some amount, though they were pretty accurate for this past Tuesday. But precisely because they're surprising to us and seem irrational, that's why we have to take them seriously. If everything were going rationally by our what we kind of have assumed for most of our adult lifetimes, we wouldn't really need to consult the polls every week or two. We would kind of have a sense of the economy's doing this and foreign policy's doing that. And that means the president's probably in this range of approval and in this range of likely reelect. And, and if the other guy has tried to overturn the election and done a whole bunch of other crazy things, uh, he probably isn't going to be the prohibitive favorite for the nomination. The fact that we are in such uncharted waters post-2016, this point you've made many times too, 
this is why you do these focus groups, right? You've got to learn what's going on out there. You may not like it. I don't like it, but take it seriously. And I would say the same about the polls. You've got to face up to where the American public is right now. If one doesn't like where they are, how does one educate them a little differently and uh, what arguments work and what arguments don't work? But the resistance to, to the arguments is pretty striking. Again, you've seen this in other groups too. I mean, people just look back at the Trump years and they've sort of forgotten about all everything they didn't like or minimized it and decided it was great. It was all just, you know, it was a wonderful four years and if only we could get that back. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing much more from swing voters back then that Trump was often embarrassing us on the national stage. Like it was an actual concern of swing voters. And now I am just hearing much more of this sentiment that like Trump because he's a wild man, they're not worried that he is totally unpredictable. They've all decided that that unpredictability is both an asset, which is tough, because if you're like, well, he's crazy, and that should be a thing that turns voters off, and they're like, no, 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 this is a good thing. But also the extent to which America first, which I think oftentimes you think of as not something particularly coherent, does have at its core this idea of we don't want any wars, we don't want our troops to go anywhere, we want the resources not to go abroad, we want them to be here, we need to take care of our own people, our own problems, the southern border. I hear this all the time, and I hear sometimes Mitch McConnell or some old school Republican or even like a Hillary Clinton trying to valiantly explain to Americans why the security of the Ukrainians, for example, why that has an impact on America, like why you should care as an American about our security and how that's related to the rest of the world. But Trump and sort of the isolationist wing of the Republican Party have done a really good job of convincing voters that if we just don't care about what happens in the rest of the world, that like it won't come find us here. No, I think that's right. America first. I remember when Trump introduced the slogan in late 2015, I guess, early 2016. I was incredulous. I mean, this is the slogan that was so discredited by World War II, this was literally the slogan of the isolationists in 39, 40, 41. We don't have to care about the fact that Hitler's overrunning Europe and that he overruns a little bit of Europe, he's not going to overrun the rest, then he overruns the rest, well, he's not going to really do anything more than that. And then Japan, also, we can stay out of that war. It stayed away a long time, I've got to say. They paid a price for that. And people learned the lessons of history for six, seven decades, and I suppose at some point that runs out. And I think it has run out. I do think it was hurt by the fact that we had both parties, in a sense, going a little bit, very mild version of America first in the last 15, 20 years of reaction to Iraq, I suppose, in particular, a kind of, you know, nation building begins at home. President Obama said that in a speech, 2009, 2010, I said to one of the fairly few people I spoke to occasionally in the Obama White House, being a good Republican critic of Obama and a huge McCain supporter at the time, I said, it's a mistake for President Obama to say that. He's saying it in a way I understand. He's nation building begins at home. We need healthcare. We need all this stuff, domestic spending. I'm not a pro-Iraq guy, so I don't want this kind of adventurism, which they thought was mistaken. Maybe it was uh, in some ways. But I said, this is going to help the Pat Buchanan forces in the Republican Party. You know, it just reinforces their sense that we need to just focus on things at home. And I got to say on that, I think there was a little inadvertent, you might say, help from the other party in this, and then Iraq going badly, and we don't have to go through the whole history of it. But I totally agree with you. The degree to which that sentiment is really pervasive now on the right, and strong. You know, Nikki Haley did her best in the Republican debate, and Chris Christie, but they're not exactly getting a majority of the Republican primary vote. DeSantis, who, when I knew him slightly as a member of Congress in 2014-15, was a staunch, you know, internationalist, World War II consensus, American strength guy. Heritage Foundation just put out something 
supporting Tuberville's block on the military promotions. I mean, which is really the most stupid and crazy and performative nonsense, but it is inconveniencing and damaging our military. It's not like a nothing. And it really is hurting military readiness. And the idea that that's now being supported by the official organs of the right, which are America first, that is the new right MAGA establishment. And I very much agree with you that people look at other parts of the message and of the you know doctrine, you might say, of the new right, and they're more startled by that. And some of that is worth being startled by the authoritarianism, the contempt for the rule of law and all. But the America first part of it is deeper than people think. It is. I just hear it all the time. And in fact, I kind of want to wrap up with how this group talked about Ukraine. Because in spite of this group's support for Israel, we heard a lot of the same things we hear from other Republicans about not wanting to give more aid to Ukraine. Let's listen. I joined a program where you were sort of a pen pal to a Ukrainian student to try to help them improve their English and so forth. And she and I had Zoom meetings twice a week. And sometimes we couldn't because she was in a shelter or she didn't have electricity or she doesn't know where her sister is or her boyfriend. They didn't have enough food. Everything that she was going through on a daily basis, bombs going off around her, sirens going off, I shared with her and it was, I was scared for her. Now she's lost communication with me altogether because she doesn't have the resources. But now I'm seeing what some of our money has gone to. And it is certainly not to help people like her. It's gone to God knows where. And I just don't think that unless we have accountability, another dime should go over there. I think that we're doing enough under the circumstances. But unfortunately, there also, in my opinion, is not the accountability for all the money we're giving and all the support we're providing. And part of that lends it back to the Biden connection, if you will. Quite concerned about that. We've given too much as it is. Look what he did with Afghanistan, leaving all the weaponry and such for the Taliban. What did the Taliban do? They sold much of it to where Hamas is now killing Israelis and everybody else using some of those weapons they've received. It's a vicious cycle right now because of Biden. And I think just yesterday, Johnson put out a bill for Israel's support, funding for Israel. Biden is going to veto it because he wants more money for the Ukraine and more for humanitarian aid. No, Israel needs money right now. And they need to see that we're unequivocal in our support. And that's not Biden. So this is a bigger question. But I got to say, there's just nothing I've seen change in the Republican Party more than the way that it views foreign policy now, right? It goes back to this America First question. But it's weird to have the Democrats be the ones who are talking about sending aid and and they want to help both Israel and Ukraine. They're not trying to use Israel as like a political football. So I guess, what do you think the future is for American foreign policy if the Republican Party continues to move in this isolationist direction? No, I mean, I really found that almost heartbreaking. That first woman who obviously is a very decent person went out of her way to have be a pen pal with someone in Ukraine that wasn't something she had to do and, and seemed to really be concerned for this young woman over there and, and for people over there. And now she's decided she's out of touch with this person. I hope that person's okay, obviously. But somehow someone told her there was no accountability for the aid and now so she's tired of it and the war is inconclusive. I mean, that's just bad. I mean, it's bad in the sense that it, it shows how much the notion of war weariness has penetrated 
you know, the, this is not the Republican elite who have fancy arguments for why we shouldn't do Ukraine. This is a kind of, let's just wash our hands of that. I think it's wrong morally, to be honest, but I also think it's very foolish geopolitically. And if that becomes pervasive in the American public, then we're back in the 20s and 30s. And then we're going to have the same consequence. If Putin prevails in Ukraine, God knows what happens in Europe. The moral, uh, I would say political case for Israel is very similar to the case for Ukraine. And if you hate the atrocities as you should in Israel, you should hate the atrocities that have happened in Ukraine. But that, as you say, is an argument some Democrats make. I wish a few more of them made it. And I wish a few more of them made it really vehemently. I think there's this little bit left over in the Democratic Party of kind of being a little apologetic before they make that argument, as opposed to the Scoop Jackson, Hubert Humphrey Democrats who led with that argument. And that was part of what made them Democrats. They were for civil rights at home and human rights abroad. It was one package. I, I think we're partly back to that, honestly, with, with Biden and Blinken and stuff, but we could use to get back a little further and a little stronger. And I do think this, but a bit of a price, just get back to our beginning of the discussion. If there were more of a Scoop Jackson, Hubert Humphrey kind of emphasis coming from the top of the Democratic Party, I think some of these people might be reminded of, yeah, you know, yeah, that's true. Half of what we spend in Ukraine is for American manufacturers to make more weapons to send to Ukraine and replenish our own stocks, et cetera, et cetera. Mitch McConnell tries to make those arguments, but the Democratic leadership could do a little more to arrest the move of public opinion. But just to finish on this, think how bad it is now as we sit here in, what is it, early November? What if Trump is the nominee as he's likely to be and he's repeating all these arguments and everyone around him is repeating all these arguments for the next year. I think that's not a good thing. Obviously, it's easy for us to think about all of the bad things that would happen if Trump became the president, even if he's the nominee. Like, the extent to which these dictators, whatever, just kind of, like, hang out and wait and prepare. Like, okay, if he wins, like, it's open season. And, like, that's why the domestic stuff, like, he's going to seek retribution. Like, that stuff's all really bad. But to me, the fact that people interpret the chaos of the world and sort of put it at Biden's feet I think is deeply frightening because the idea of Trump being president when the world feels like it's on the brink, like when it feels like we're in a really scary place and like at the precipice of something, Trump marching in and tipping us over in that, whether it's pulling us out of NATO or siding with Putin against Ukraine or just otherwise destabilizing the world in his way, I find deeply frightening. And so ends another <laughs> upbeat episode of the Focus Group podcast. Bill Crystal, my friend, thank you so much for coming on today. And thanks to all of you for listening to the Focus Group podcast. Remember to rate and review us, which helps others discover the show. We will be back next week with a special Thanksgiving episode. Bye, everyone. Bye.